I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is another installment of Convo by Design Presents West Edge Wednesday. A look back at all of the incredible programming from the 2023 edition of the West Edge Design Fair held at the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica, California. These conversations were held on the stage designed by Marbe Designs and presented by BR Home. This is part nine in our series and features a conversation with interior designer, adjudicator, showroom owner, lover of fashion and authentic objects, Cliff Fong, whose firm, Matte Black Inc., have earned critical acclaim for their authentic and meaningful design. Fong's new showroom, Fair Divert, features indoor and outdoor garden space with an emphasis on architectural vessels and rare plant material. This one-on-one -on -one conversation explores form and function, leading to spaces that inspire and improve the quality of life. I love this conversation, and I hope you do too. This chat with Cliff was the final talk of the show, and for me, it really was the perfect way to put a bow on the experience that West Edge was this year. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you to Convo by Design partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, and Design Hardware for making the podcast possible. And thank you for listening and watching these episodes of the show. For links to all our partners, guests on this episode, West Edge Design Fair, Marbe Designs, Be Our Home, please check the podcast show notes for links. And you can find that at convobydesign.com. Click the podcast tab. Thanks for watching and listening. Thank you guys for coming. And you're like bookending it for us. You're celebrating the last, uh, the last of the panels with us. Um, welcome to Convo by Designs uh, stage here at West Edge. The, uh, the, the West Edge Stage 2023 uh, presented by BR Home and designed by Marbe Designs and featuring Dunn Edwards. The, oh, I'm so sad. That's the last time I'm going to say it this whole weekend. I've only said it like a thousand times. <laughs> um, it's funny, for those of you who have seen some of the panels before, you will, you will know that I have said before every single panel that this next one is my favorite panel. And there, to be kind of honest with you, it's true because so much time, like design, so much time goes into curating and creating um, good conversations, which I think are really, really important. And this next one, um, Cliff, how many times have we spoken? Uh, I think three or four times. Three or four times. Cliff Fong, um, an absolutely extraordinary creative and you know, one of the things that is so special for me is I think, I think you were, so I started the podcast in 2013 and you and I met for the first time at a showroom in the Pacific Design Center. That's right. In like 2015, I think. Yeah, it sounds about right. You were early. <laughs> and you know what else? That's right, because I'm usually late. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't mean early, early like that. I mean early, and, and I, can, I can tell you now, um, I look back at the, the guy who was doing that podcast in, in 2015 with imposter syndrome at level 10. Like, I don't deserve to do this. I don't know why I'm doing this. I know that I love doing this. I just don't know who's going to take me seriously. And you, you were the guy that, you were like a linchpin for me. You freed me because you were the, you were the I hate to even say this because it's kind of crass, but like you were the biggest name that had said <laughs> that had said yes to me at the time. You were the guy who was like, yeah, yeah. I'll do my cliff phone for, for a second. Yeah, sounds fun. We can talk. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for doing that. And thank, thank you for being thank you for being a guy who says yes to someone who needs someone to say yes to them. Oh, well, I'm, thanks for all of that. That was a really generous uh kind of perspective that you had, but I, I honestly didn't really think about saying, I, I say yes when I can and no when I can't. I don't really think about status in the way I think a lot of people probably do, especially in this town, where they need to know who else is lined up or what you've done in the past or, you know, I, I, I think I, be, because of my work in fashion, I come from a place where it was always important to, to do the work yourself and, and find what it is that's important, not to wait for some 
you know, reflexive moment to, to do something that's already been done or to try to do something faster, cheaper. I, I, I like the build it and they will come model. So if, I'm ever, if I ever get to be part of something at the inception, I feel, much, I, I feel like it's much more interesting than, than coming to the game after something's established. You know, what, what, what have I done to actually you know, deserve or create any of that if I'm not out there doing the work myself? And I caught you at a really interesting time. You know, I want to talk about the background. I want to talk about the, the backstory in fashion because it's really fun. You know, for me, sometimes I, I don't go back and listen to back episodes because I can't do it. Do you go back and look at your past work and, and use it as a learning tool? Do you go back and look at it to, to see? Do you judge yourself when you go back and look at what you've done in the past? Um, well, that, that's, I, I would say, no, I never go back and look at things in the past because I, I find very little value in it. But I would say, yes, I am constantly judging myself and, and, and judging whether or not something I am doing or contributing to or creating is, is kind of as special as, it, as I can, you know, as I hope to make it. So I, I, I think it's really unproductive. And, and I think that's probably something I learned in fashion that it makes no sense to, to try to um, navigate anything from the past, right? I, I, I might look at something, be happy with it when it's finished, and then um, it, it might completely, you know, repulse me afterwards. <laughs> but that is sort of the nature of how things work in fashion. It's, it's seasonal and you move in, in a progressive moment from season to season and you leave whatever, you know, you've done in the past behind. Or if you really know what you're doing, then you build on what it is that's, that's been done in the past. And I, and I think by the time I started working in design, I felt like I had a much greater perspective on, on the potential to do that versus what I was constantly trying to, you know, chase concerning fashion. Now, you know, with, with design work, if someone, you know, thanks to iPhones and Facebook, you get these memories whether you want them or not. You know, they, they just show up on your phone or they show up on your desktop or, or whatever. And every once in a while I look at them and I think, oh, wow, things have really evolved since then. But, I, but I'm not so critical of what it is that I had done because I had done something for a client, the client was happy, and it really was sort of the best it could have been at that moment. It's, but you know, if I, I think if, and please don't go out there and look for it, but if I look at my high school yearbook picture, <laughs> that is the thing I don't, that's the thing where if I, I think that's the thing that made me never to look back <laughs> because I just said, who did I think I was then or, or what was I doing then? Or I mean, it just seems kind of ridiculous. So yeah, I, I try not to, to burn myself with things that aren't really very helpful or productive or useful. And in truth, I'm not terribly sentimental either. So I don't, I don't always you know, look back on things in, in some sort of wanton way. I, I, I really like looking forward or just being in the moment. Back to the, to the origin story that includes fashion. And I, I love this and I find it really interesting. You know, over the years, interviewing creatives of all types, I have, I've, I've always find it fascinating to talk to, I've spoken to a designer who was once a, um, she was an agent with CAA. And you think, why would you leave? It's not de minimis to an interior designer, but why would you leave as an, as, you're at CAA, you're out of the mailroom, like you made it. All you gotta do is keep going and you're gonna crush it. But I've, I've also spoken to, to designers and architects who were lawyers, who, who had gone to school, they'd gone through the whole process to, to get a professional degree in, in another profession. And what I found was, it's interesting, that the frame of, of reference, the knowledge base that they learned from, from that world, that they brought into this world, had given them a skill set that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, your background in, in fashion, what do you think that gave you, as far as a frame of reference, how does that inform you as a designer? Hmm. Well, you know, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure how the work 
influenced kind of my current aesthetic, but I think in, it may have influenced the practice of, of defining an aesthetic for somebody. I, I think because uh, I'm a student of art history and I've spent a lot of time in Europe, well actually in, in a lot of you know different geographic regions, um, when I look at things, whether it's a piece of art or a piece of architecture or a piece of fashion, for whatever reason, I think because of my various experiences, everything gets put into some sort of context for me that, that, that I can understand from a historical perspective. So in that regard, it, I, I think I'm always quite conscientious of, of where there's a valid reference point to, to express. Um, where there are some things I might want to avoid because I, I, they might represent a less interesting moment for me or something flimsy or, or something that, that might only exist as an affectation. I, I generally kind of avoid those things because most of what, I, what I'm interested in exploring are, are more substantial moments in design or art. And, and in some ways, when I worked in fashion, that's also something that I was interested in doing and not not looking at trend or, or thinking about what might play to an audience that, that kind of is, is kind of looking at things in a, in a trendy or flimsy or, or, or kind of, you know, thin or fast way, which is kind of where fashion is at the moment. I, I don't think it's a great time in fashion uh, because there's so many companies um, that actually are conglomerates for smaller companies, like for instance, someone like Ermena Gildazenia, it's a vertical company that has its own factories, its own textile production, its own, um, you know, lines that it, that it owns. Like for instance, they just bought Tom Brown, but they had also been producing for Versace, Valentino, even Giorgio Armani. So what's really different about those collections other than the label. If you're buying a black gabardine jacket, maybe you're getting a little bit of something different in a cut, but, but you're getting the same kind of quality across the board. And then with all of these companies now that, that try to snag designers from Gucci or Saint Laurent or Balenciaga, they just keep moving from house to house. Well, where's the loyalty to the brand? In that respect, and, I, and I think a lot of those companies are kind of doing themselves in by trying to stay too current, as opposed to sticking close to their philosophical origins or, or the tradition um, of, their, of their branded luxury that, that gave them that longevity. And, and I, I think a lot of people are changing their business models in, in, in a way that I don't think represents good long-term perspective. You know, I, I, I think, I think the more people kind of flip-flop flip -flop through their industry, the, the, there's, there's a diminishing marginal return for every time they make a change. And, and I'm, I think, much more identified with the idea of being consistent and, and building or evolving around a single philosophical point, expanding versus thinking linearly in how to get to A to B. I want to I want to expand on that idea a little bit because I think one of the things that is extraordinary about what you do is you you are the the true multi hyphenate you know as fashion designer adjudicator on a reality show which you know I want to ask you about that too because you know what it's like dude you're such a sweet guy you're such a nice guy how do you tell someone on a TV <laughs> show that their design is not acceptable well. That was kind of an interesting thing. I, I really enjoyed that show, although I had been asked, and, and still continually, I'm, I'm kind of asked to, to be, you know, either the subject or, or, or contributor to some sort of show that is non-scripted. But 90% of those, I think, um, are sort of like train wreck television shows where I think they expect people to turn in to watch either the worst things happen or, or the worst aspects aspects of human nature to come out. And I really can't be part of something that I don't feel is, is a healthy message or an appropriate message. I, I, and I'm not in, entertained at all by, by conflict. I, I think, you know, I'm not risk or conflict, you know, adverse. There are a lot of things you have to tackle head on in life, especially as a creative person in a country that doesn't really support 
creative thinking. <laughs> but, but for those shows, I really, you know, most of it I think is really unhealthy. Um, but the one thing that I really liked about that show is that at, at the time I really trusted the, the producers. I knew that the message was going to be positive. And I was actually tasked with, with something that I felt was very kind of productive and nurturing, being a mentor, maybe offering people good advice or, or possible options for a direction they could, they could grow or evolve in. Um, how I was edited, however, is something I have no control over. And, you know, a lot of people who might, you know, really good friends or people who might know me a little more perfectly said, wow, I didn't know you could be so tough on people. And I said, well, I'm not sure that I am or not, but if, if the three judges, if two of the three judges say something positive, they're only going to use my one critical comment. But, but I think I can always recognize or, or find something positive in any creative effort, and I would always preface any, any statement with, with what I saw that was positive, and then I delivered maybe something that might be hopefully constructive as criticism, or, or, you know, or on, on rare occasions, something where I, I felt like someone really just failed or dropped the ball. But, I, but I've never... Um, you know, my, my great-grandfather was a diplomat, and for whatever reason, I, I think I've adopted diplomacy and as, as part of my, you know, uh, way of communicating. So I always felt like I was doing, I, I, was, I was delivering something in a very kind of moderate or, or appropriate way. But again, how I was edited, I think, might look like something else. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, as you're talking, I'm thinking about it. You, you've also done something that I think is really fascinating. There are a lot of people, like the, the designers who started out as an agent in CAA or a designer who started out as a lawyer who became a designer. You, you hear about all, a lot of people. Look, I mean, post-pandemic, many people changed their vocation. They mm -hmm. changed the way that they think about things, so they changed the things that they wanted to do and from where they wanted to do them. One of the things that I think you've done extraordinarily well, which, and I view this as one of these opportunities, like to learn from someone like you, who's done this effectively. There's two ways to change course, aggressively and abruptly, or thoughtfully, and the latter is generally the better. Um, what you've done as you progress through your career is you've, you've tacked, your tact has been, to, to change when you when we were talking the other day we talked about this a little bit how you've changed course but you don't you don't change course immediately you kind of think through the direction you want to go maybe in this case you know you, you kind of see which way the wind is blowing and then you can you can sort of change the sail and go in that direction but you're not you're not doing a hard change because that would be disastrous but it's really interesting how you've done it and I want to get to the to the showroom and the journey but as we talk about going through fashion the evolution of your career and the method and manner in which you've changed directions is really interesting to me. What's the thought process behind changing of directions the way that you've done them? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if, if that's a, that you, there's no single answer to that. You know, I, I read somewhere once that um, Winston Churchill said, a fortunate person changes their career every 10 years. And if I think about the way I was brought up, my, my father had a whole life before I was born. He was, a, he was an engineer before I was born. And then, yet I only knew him as a dentist. And, and then, um, you know, later he retired from dentistry and, and became, um, uh, well, he, he became military intelligence, which was, I don't, I don't know how that happened. The ultimate but, oxymoron. Yeah, exactly. That and jumbo shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> But my, and my mother kind of did the same thing. She had a lot of different career iterations, even though she was a doctor. So, uh, you know, for them, I thought, I, th I think my father might have represented somebody who just did a 180 or flip-flopped. Um, for my mother, it was a very natural progression. And in my own way, it feels like a very natural progression because while I was spending time in European capitals, you know, working in fashion, at some point I got kind of tired of, you know, just going out and partying all the time uh, or, you know, trying to sleep with models or whatever, you know, <laughs> we, whatever I did then. Um, sorry. Uh, no, let's go there. But, I, but instead, I started, <laughs> instead I started getting up early and going to flea markets because I got really interested in a, in a very n 
particular era of design, which was French and Italian mid-century modern, the work of Jean Royer, Jean Prouvé, Serge Mouy, you know, Pierre Garriche, you know, people like that. Um, and I, I remember the, the very first piece of Jean Prouvé I bought um, was before there were even euros. It was in French francs, and it was 5,000 French francs. And this was in kind of the early 90s, and I thought, I must be insane to be spending $1,000 on a chair. Although, you know, for, for those of you who work in design, good luck finding a chair that's under $1,000, you know, or, or it's, it's tough. And if you want that chair now, it's hard to find one under $25,000. So I'd, I'd kind of, while working fashion, every, every time I would go to Europe, I'd come back or send back some sort of souvenir, but it was a piece of design. I started putting this together in my home and one day a friend came by and thought it was very interesting and she asked me to help her and then another friend asked and another friend asked and before I knew it I had kind of a design practice without really ever like meaning to, to, to switch careers. I had sort of a, a, a fiscally viable hobby. And, and then at some point the way I think maybe it works for a lot of people, once I knew enough about fashion or I had enough time there, I wanted to know something else. It doesn't mean that I wasn't stimulated in some way or I wasn't in entertained in some way, but one of the things that, that started to become really resonant to me is I, I can't just be entertained or stimulated for the rest of my life. I, be, I, I need to be challenged, I need to, I need to grow and evolve, and I think that's kind of one of the most important things we could ask of ourselves as we go through as we go through life. So, I actually started to give that moment a little more attention, or be open to 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 kind of broader experiences in design, and and after kind of doing projects as sort of a hobby for half a dozen years, I decided to leave fashion and devote myself full time to design, which I don't think I've ever looked back and or, you know, no regrets about, about any of that. And I guess to kind of have a full circle moment back to your other question about how, how fashion may have influenced it, one of the things that I, that I say often, especially to somebody who, who I think is a little overwhelmed by the design process or, or frustrated themselves with it. Not, not something I speak with clients about so much, but when people ask me how to do it on their own, I say, well, it's just like getting dressed in the morning. And if you think about a room as a, as a, as a day in your life and what are you wearing on that day, well, it's easy to look at a rug and think of it as your favorite pair of jeans, meaning you can put anything on top of that rug, whether it's a hand-knit cashmere sweater, a tailored jacket, a, a sexy top, you know, you, you, there are ways to sort of compartmentalize things where they can be understood better versus being overwhelmed with the idea that you don't know where to begin or you don't know how to put something together. Well, everybody knows how to get dressed in the morning. Some people dress more successfully than others and some people communicate more, more effectively through their clothing. Well, it doesn't mean that someone who, who doesn't have a fashion vocabulary can't look well-dressed in the same way that someone who doesn't necessarily have a vocabulary for design can't put a room together in a way that could make them happy. Maybe not everything is going to be, you know, in an editorial in the same way that not very few of us can dress right off the runway. But, but I think there's a way to, to understand things and, and I think everybody is able to understand how to get dressed in the morning. And I think through that, everybody should be able to find out how to, how to decorate their own living room or their own bedroom to make themselves you know, comfortable and, and happy. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. And, and I think that it's a good time to sort of reset. And you know, the, the topic for the conversation, the, the top line for the conversation was, was the importance of design. And, I mean, give me your take on this, because I think, I think pre-pandemic, and by the way, I'm just throwing this out there. This is the last event, this is the last conversation 
that I think I will find myself referencing the pandemic. Huh. I think I'm done mm -hmm. talking about the, the, because I feel like we've 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 been through it. We've learned a lot from it. I think there are lessons, there are takeaways, but I think now we've gotten to the point now that we've we've come through the the fog of war, the fog of the pandemic, mm -hmm. where things are starting to clarify mm -hmm. and we understand. But back to the idea when you and I were talking before about this idea, the importance of design. I, we learned from that experience what was important because we couldn't go anywhere else. If, if you've got a poorly designed space and you're uncomfortable on your sofa, mm -hmm. it's like, wow, this sofa's terrible, I'm gonna get a new one. Well, what happens if you can't get a new one? Well, sofa's terrible, I'm uncomfortable. You know what, let's go take a weekend trip and go relax. Well, what, can, what happens if you can't go to Palm Springs for the weekend? So now you're stuck. You're stuck in a box, you're stuck in your room, you're stuck in your space, and you still have to sit on an uncomfortable sofa that now you're thinking about it all the time. It's kind of like getting dressed in the morning, right? Like you had mentioned, where you, you put on these really, really uncomfortable jeans and you've only got that pair of jeans, but you got to wear them every day. And the importance of design, I think, has, I think the nature of design has changed. And people are, are taking more of a thoughtful approach to, you're having people who never, who never considered the language that is architecture or the narrative that is design, the storytelling that is design and how it affects their lives. Ha has it changed for you the way that you think about the work, the way that you think about design now? Um, you mean how, how I think about design in relation to myself or how? Yeah, that was, was, a, that was a terribly poorly worded question. Um, I, I'm, yeah, I'm you're, you're being hard on yourself. But I, well, <laughs> thank you. But no, in, in all seriousness, it's like the importance of design. Going from fast fashion mm -hmm. to fair divert, where you've got historical products, you've you've got meaningful materials, you've got things that you look at that you can mm -hmm. that are that are well crafted, that have that have grown a certain way. The materials are meaningful. Right. It's changed. Uh, well, yes, it, it's and it's also changing all the time. I don't know. I, I don't think they're well. If if anybody here is over forty, <laughs> you might remember a time before before denim, where all we had was Levi's and Lee and Dockers right? and, do <laughs> and and Dockers, yeah. Um, or or rather, there there was a time where people either shopped at Macy's or or Chico's or. <laughs> Or they were flying to New York, Milan, Paris, and buying really expensive things. And there was also a time where, where, where design was concerned, where either you had nothing to do with design, or you had the money to hire a designer. Well, in the mid-90s, there was this huge expansion to the world of fashion with the rise of the denim and contemporary market. And suddenly, instead of e either buying kind of a sad dress from JCPenney, or an expensive dress on Rodeo Drive, suddenly you could buy something anywhere in between, from $300 to whatever, and, and you'd look great. And instead of only being able to buy Lee or Levi's, suddenly there were all these really interesting denim brands, Japanese ones with Japanese de denim woven on special looms with unique salvage points and, and special washes. It was kind of amazing. Well, the design market is, is in an expansion phase right now, very similar to what happened in fashion in, in the 90s. And having spent a good chunk of my kind of formative years in Europe and being around a group of people who, who were much more interested in fashion and had much more familiarity with it because historically Europeans had a greater history in fashion than Americans. Americans had Levi's. The French had Givenchy, Balenciaga, I mean, they, they, Dior, Saint Laurent, some of the most important creators in the world that have contributed to the decorative arts and, our, and, and how to enrich our lives. Well, Americans only knew workwear and, and you know, rugged play, playwear. So now there's everything in between. Well, the same thing is happening in design. And the, the more it expands, the more people are given the freedom at, to, to ask themselves, 
how, how can I use some of this to help define the way I live in the way that they learned how to define, how to communicate or how to dress and communicate through fashion in the mid-90s? Well, I, I think people are seeing their homes as an extension of communication as well. What do we want to communicate to our families? What do we need to feel comfortable and, and, and stimulated? What, how are we going to entertain our guests or our extended families? These are all really important questions and, and, and yet not more than, not less than 20 years ago, everybody just needed a bed and a couch. So, so now with that expansion, I think it's given people the freedom to, to actually just choose differently. And it's not, and, and it doesn't have to mean that you drive to, you know, Palm Springs to, to buy vintage furniture in the same way that you don't have to drive to Rodeo Drive to get, you know, a, a good piece of fashion. There's authenticity and, and something valid at every price point. And, it, and you know, I, this is not a big trade secret, but, but occasionally we have, you know, we have projects with no budget some projects we have with a lean budget, but in the same way that I think about fashion where style has nothing to do with financial freedom, it has everything to do with intention. Mm -hmm. And if you go to Rodeo and you buy head-to-toe Prada, that doesn't make you a fashion icon, that just makes you a, a consumer. That says nothing to, about your level of taste, only your, or only your financial freedom. And it's sort of the same thing in design. So, so I love B&B, I love Minotti, but I don't think I would want to live in something that looked like one of their showrooms. And if I'm being tasked with helping a client define the way they live, well, they don't need me to, to go to a showroom buy everything you know, from top to bottom. So if you spend a little time on Etsy, Cherish, I love eBay, I, I, I could be on eBay all night. Um, or first dibs, if, 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 you, if you maybe are looking for something more specific or you're interested in collecting. I, I, think it, I think it style is always going to be kind of in that mix of high and low. And I can't tell you how, how lovely it is or how, how, how much clients appreciate the idea that, that they haven't given me a budget, meaning they're free to spend a couple million dollars on a piece of art or $100,000 on, on a chair when I bring them something that is unique and special and I found it at a thrift shop, they're so excited about that because we're giving them something that, that I think not a, other, lot of a, not a lot of other people might have the bandwidth to give them or the intention or interest even. But, you know, for me, if we're talking about fashion, I think that is a moment to express your individualism. And, and I think your home, if you're not doing the same thing, you're missing an opportunity. Everything in your home should be reflective of your likes and interests and your personality, not something you see because, something you want because you saw it in, in a design magazine or on a blog or from someone who calls himself an influencer but might actually just be a consumer. And I, I think those are great, great points. And, you know, I, I feel like we have reached the end of, we en we've reached the end of the influencer era. And I, I feel like, you know, it's really interesting. Um, so when, when I started the show, I, I, had to, I had to do all my booking myself. I had to work hard. But coming from, from my days at Playboy and booking at Playboy, I, I did, it was second nature to me. It was, it was fine. It was like, I love calling and doing my booking for the show. It's great. Um, but after a while, it got to the point where I didn't have to do the booking the, the same laborious way anymore because now people were calling me because they wanted to get, you know, publicists wanted to get their clients on the show and designers wanted to get on the show and architects wanted to get on the show. So I didn't have to work as hard to do the booking. And Fortunately, I've never gone the influencer route, but it's really the pitch for influencers is really interesting because they start with, and you can always tell it's the it's the um, it's the email that goes out to a lot of people because they'll be like, "Hi, Josh," and then paragraph, 
we have this client. So it was like it went out to a whole bunch of people, um, and I get that, but they would say, we've got this designer who's got three million followers, and they're an influencer, and it's tempting. It's tempting to find someone who's, you know, it's like, wow, they've got three million followers. That would be great for the show. But then you start, if you dig and you start looking at what they do, it's like, oh, they're not really doing anything. They're telling you all these things that they like, which has, there's no reference point to what other people might like. And I feel like an influencer is someone who's gonna tell you how great they are and how great the things are that they like, whereas an influential will tell you the things that if you like this, then you'll like that. And I think that that's kind of like where the, the, the fashion, like a runway show, like a runway show is exciting, right? It's like a, it's like a car show. If you're into cars, you go to an, you go to an auto show because you're going to see all the great things. If you're into fashion, you go to a runway show, knowing you're probably not going to walk wear what's what's on the runway. But when it finally makes its way to something that that you can purchase, you can you can it'll affect your life in a positive way because you've you've seen the idea and you like it. But one of the things that that I think you've done extraordinarily well, like this. This transition, it's not a transition, but it's, it's an evolution between, you know, that, that idea of fashion and the new showroom, Fair Divert. And when we were talking about the products and materials, your, your ideas and your, your concepts on materiality and historical nature and value of product and material is, is really, um, it's evolved, it's well-defined, and it's something that you can look at, I can look at, and I can say, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the importance of design and what makes it important, it's not just about the money, but it's, a, it's experiential. How does that make you feel? How does it make you live? And I can only give you one example, which is, it's, okay, it's really silly. And I'm almost, I'm almost afraid to bring this up, but I'm gonna bring it up anyway, because I think it makes the point, it galvanizes it, at least for me, and I hope you, it works. You know, I, I'm a native Angelino, I grew up in LA. I was a, I was a teenager in the 80s in the San Fernando Valley. I, John, I lived a John Hughes movie and I could tell you the white Nike high tops, the red parachute pants, and the, and the- With zippers. Oh yeah, of course. With the, with the aqua sleeveless shirt and the beat it leather jacket. Again, no shortage of zippers. Ridiculous. If you saw somebody wear, if you saw me wearing that today, it'd be like, dude. But I will tell you, the way, the way that that made me feel when I was wearing that in the 1980s, going out to a concert at the Universal Amphitheater, like when I was 16, going to a show with friends, I remember that. I remember how it made me feel. It's almost like that's a feeling that, that you chase. You, you chase the way that the experiential nature of, of fashion because of the way it makes you feel. And what you're talking about is the experiential nature of the way that you dress a home and how fashion for the home, the way that it's used, the way that it makes you feel, the experiential nature of like, I've, I found a place where I'm comfortable, where it's peace for the mind, it's peace for the soul. And regardless of whether or not anyone else likes it, it's how you feel and fair divert. So now you've got this showroom where you've, you've, you've kind of ideated this new, this concept that works for you. How do you come up with, with the idea and how do you, I guess the, the idea is, if, if you're a showroom owner, you're still, at some point, sales is still a part of it, unless you're a collector, and you're showing people your collections. If you have a showroom, then you're selling, and you want other people to participate in the process. So how do you balance the two ideas? Well, I don't. I, don't, I, I really don't think about it that much. In, in whatever way, I, I think I just sort of learned to trust my instincts. But doesn't mean that I don't question them. It just means that I, it's, I, I, I'm never at a loss for an idea. I'm never struggling for that. If, if anything, my, a lot of my process is more about editing and, and weeding out what it is that might not be relevant or what might not be appropriate at the moment or what might not have any validity in, in whatever current context I'm, I'm kind of dealing with. 
you know, if, if we're talking about fashion, some people don't need it, right? Some people can wear a t-shirt and jeans or, or for their entire lives and look great and be fine and never question or ask or want more. Sometimes I, I think it would be wonderful to be that person. <laughs> it would be wonderful to not be tasked with all the various levels of, of kind of subtlety that my mind that get, gets wrapped up in. But, but I'm also very thankful that I have um, some sort of interest or feeling about expressing nuance. And, and, and if you're going to successfully express nuance, you have to always consider context. So, y you know, you were, you were kind of being a little hard on yourself again about this outfit that you were wearing, but the context that in which you wore that in was probably perfect. And it doesn't, and although you said that you would look ridiculous now, I can think of half a dozen people who would probably look great in that because the context of their lives and why they wear clothing gives, gives that, gives justification to, to choosing that outfit, right? I mean, I, I, I think, you know, to defend your point, both of us would look ridiculous if we were dressed that way right now. Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> but but I, I think there are moments where I think you want to have a little fun with your home. You want to have a little fun with your 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 clothing. You want to have a little fun with your your showroom, you know, or your, or your retail store, whatever it is. So so you know, things are always changing, things are always evolving, and, and most of that is because I think I have a pretty active mind and, and, and that looks to activate various creative inspirations. So, so there's always something else happening, and if I can create the appropriate context for something, well, anything is possible, really. And I, and I think people can do that in every level of their lives. You know, I, uh, it's, it's interesting, you touched on something earlier regarding, you know, this agent at CAA who's now a designer. And, and there's always this tendency, I think, for us to judge people when they choose to make a career change. Or I remember, um, uh, you guys all know who Jennifer Lopez is, right? Um, I always thought she, w I don't, at this point, I don't even remember if she started as a singer or as an actor. She was a fly girl. Fly girl, okay, she started as a dancer. Well, then maybe I knew her as an actor, and when she released an album, I thought, why does the world need another person who's singing a song that doesn't even sound like that different from something else? Now, I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers. I love everything she does across the board, and she's really good at everything she does across the board. So we, we have this tendency to judge people saying, oh, well, models can't be actors, or actors can't be singers, or, or, Agents can't be designers. Well, I, I really support anybody who's interested in changing the dynamic of their lives, especially if it's something creative. Because whether we are painting for ourselves or, or working in a creative field that we've always wanted to explore, either way, that has incredible value. And, and even business people, you know, being an entrepreneur, is a is an expression of creativity. You you no one no one gets to where they they end up being as an entre entrepreneur without thinking about their business or practice creatively or thinking out of the box. You know there are some people who I think are much better at at working within a structure and and appreciate the consistency or the reliability of a paycheck, and yet. Most of the people I know who've chosen to do work independently have never looked back. I, and most of them said if they knew the kind of freedom, the, the kind of creativity that they would experience, the kind of joy that they would get from actually working for themselves, they would have done that a long time ago. So I, 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 I'm, I'm, it's, it's very rare that, I'm, that I ever feel like I judge anybody for, for choosing differently than, than what they know. And I think that's a very, a, a really healthy thing. What I, what I love too is your approach to this thoughtful evolution. The idea of that everyone should change careers, at least according to William Churchill, about uh, every 10 years. Yeah, I, I wish there were some politicians that would change careers. Oh my actually. gosh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, which by the way, I love, 
what did, you know, when uh, George W. was in office, I kind of thought the world was upside down. I didn't know it could actually get more upside down than, than that. But one of the things I love about W now is that he's a painter and he actually paints really beautifully and his message is also not a nonpartisan message, which I think, oh, there's, there's someone who came out the other side in a really beautiful way. And, and I think everybody should give themselves that opportunity. I mean, it, it, I don't, I, I just think that if you're not doing that, you're missing out on, on the true potential of, of your life if you're not actually exploring as much as you can explore. I know there are some practical reasons why people need to stay in, in what, they're, what they're in. Um, and we don't always have the luxury to choose how we make our money. Sometimes it just really does boil down to, to necessity. But I also think being creative is a necessity as well because it gives you um, a respite from your responsibilities. It, it, it can broaden the way you think. It can change the way you think about a lot of other things in your life. So even, even if you can't change careers, if you can give yourselves just a few minutes a day to be creative, to write, to paint, to draw, to explore some sort of interest, I think those are all really, really healthy things. And I, and I really don't understand why in this country we don't support and, and encourage people to think more creatively. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that I have always loved about the design community is it, it, it in the past has been very supportive. Mm -hmm. I, I think these days we're not as supportive as we, we once were, but one day I hope we get to the point where, like in the, in the musical community of jazz, uh, when I was at Playboy every year, um, when the musicians all came in for the Playboy Jazz Festival, I had a chance to interview all of these musicians who would, who would come in to town for the, for the show. And um, what I learned in, in talking to these, whether it was a, an 80-something-year-old Wayne Shorter or a Herbie Hancock or Al Jarreau, one of these guys who was at the top of their game, they all said the same thing. They all said the same thing. They were like, you know, I always contribute to mentoring young musicians. And they really did. They didn't just say it, they did it. Um, they, would, they would play on a record. They would uh, go out and support a show. They would bring them in and teach them, you know, things that they, it would take them decades to learn. They would teach them what they did. I don't think that there's enough of that in our industry, but I think that it's, our industry is based on that, where, where people do give back and share their knowledge, which is why you're here and we're talking today. Tell me about, the, just as we get closer to wrapping this up, tell me about the showroom and this, this thoughtful creative evolution of yours and what, what you envision it to be and what it's a, a step towards, because we also spoke about the, the changing nature of things. And I, I don't remember how you said it, but it, it's like, you know, it, nothing's meant to stay the same. If you're trying to build something that's gonna stay the same, it's not gonna work. You have to create something that is going to evolve. Yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think I've ever, or rather not since I was an adolescent, I, I've, I hadn't, I have not looked at change in a negative way. You know, when I, was a, when I was a kid and my parents, you know, separated and I kind of felt like I was, I was ripped from everything I knew and, and, and you know, put in a, in a place or in a position where I had to start all over again. I, I was really embittered about that as a kid and, and I, of course I took it out on my parents <laughs> until I actually realized, wait a minute, my world just, my world just broadened by 100%. And every time I've made a change since then, my, my experiences, my knowledge, my sense of self just feels like it's enriched exponentially. So I, I, never, I, I never hold on too long to anything because I sort of feel like 
I, I don't know if anybody was following, but earlier this year, I basically sold 70 or 80% of everything I owned. Not because, uh, <laughs> actually I had friends going, is everything okay? Like, I, you know, I, it wasn't a fire sale. I just felt like I'd been designing around so much of that for too long that I wanted to feel something different, see something different, engage something different. And I felt like I was kind of stuck in that moment. And I can't tell you how wonderful the, that feels to sort of free myself from, from some of those things that I, that, that I felt like had trapped me in, in a singular expression for too long. And, and it doesn't mean that I fell out of love with those things. I, I think I just realized that I'm not doing or experiencing or getting as much as I could be getting out of my daily reality in, in, in my home. And, and if I can also share that potential with clients or friends or the casual shopper in my showroom, I think that's a great thing. And, and one of the reasons I think I enjoy having this new showroom the most is not, not because I you know, need another stream of income, although that's a nice thing, but, but really it gives me a moment to tinker and change, or, or rather it forces me to always make sure that I'm thinking about, about what it is that people see or feel or experience when they come in. And it was, it, it, and you know, for whatever reason, I, I was not able to do that in my former showroom with partners at Gallery Half. So, you know, I, I had been sort of building a, a collection of things over the years that sort of related to, uh, all right, we'll go back to fashion again, where, <laughs> where sometimes I buy things because I feel like I'm gonna wear that when I go to this place. Like, I just bought an overcoat the other day. I will never wear an overcoat in Los Angeles, but it's a, it, but it's a handsome one, it's cashmere and really nice. But I thought, well, when I go to New York, I'll wear that. Or when I go to Chicago for work, I'll wear that. But at some point I had an entire wardrobe of things for a vacation or, or trips I wasn't taking. Just because I, I, I think I was looking for ways to justify shopping, you know. But, but in another way, I also am incredibly well prepared <laughs> for, any, for any climate, any trip, anything. And, that, and also having been a Boy Scout, what's the Boy Scout motto? Always be prepared. So, so you know, that's part self-enabling, and actually, I've I found that there are practical aspects to that that I really sort of appreciate. Well, if if I do the same thing in my showroom and I create interest or need or or different ways of expressing, you know, how one can can live and experience their home, I I think. Not only is that really fun for me, but it also feels like I'm doing exactly what I should be doing. Or rather, this is the service we're providing. This is this is the atmosphere or the perspective we're providing, versus putting something on Instagram or or getting an influencer or, or, or somebody to tell you it's good, versus coming in and judging for yourself in your own context and and seeing if it's good. As we get close to wrapping it up, you know, it's funny because for years I don't, I don't usually do this, um, especially on panels, but because I have Cliff here and, you know, you are just such a wealth of knowledge and you're always so willing to freely share it. Does anyone have a question for Cliff? Anyone have a question? Anything that is burning that you've been wanting to ask? No? Okay, good. All right. Then that means we've done our job and we're covering it. Good. So what is the... What is the evolution of the showroom? So how do, you, how do you merchandise it? Because of what you're doing, how do you merchandise it? Well, it's, it's really different from my, my other showroom, Gallery Half. It, one, the price point's a little bit different because I never wanted to be the most expensive person on the block, much less the planet. Sometimes it just seems ridiculous. You know, there's, there's a segment of the population who really appreciates that and in a city like Los Angeles, I don't know if it's good or, or not, but you can just dare someone to spend the money and they will. That is not how I want to go about my business. 
but but and and the idea in opening this new showroom was not to offer a concession to price point at all. It's more just organic and whatever we find in whatever way that we can can offer it to people. I I, I like the I like I feel really good knowing that I that we're just doing it appropriately. And and it it doesn't have to follow any particular price point to be valid. You know, in the world of art, just because expense, it's expensive doesn't mean it's good. And, and just because, you know, a, a major collector has it, or even if a major collector doesn't have it or a museum doesn't have it, doesn't mean that it's not valid. And I, I think the same thing goes for design and, I guess, to that point, fashion as well. So, you know, we, I, I like the idea of just offering something because it's interesting to offer it, not because it makes a lot of money or, or not because it's trendy, but because we believe in it and, and it's a perspective that's worth sharing. But, but I, I think also one of the biggest kind of differences in this showroom is that we've, we've incorporated um, an aspect of outdoor living to the showroom versus just what happens on the interior. You know, because in California, we, we live indoors and outdoors. I don't understand why there aren't more restaurants with outdoor seating here. It just seems ridiculous. But, and, and I also never understood why there aren't more showrooms that actually cater to, to outdoor design and outdoor living because we live with our doors open and we walk in and out. And I love days when I get to spend the entire day outside. It's really, really a nice thing. So you'll find, you know, a lot, uh, I also have this weird, well, maybe it's not weird, but an affinity for, for studio pottery, and in particular, um, the work of the, the uh, stable of designers that worked for architectural pottery in the 60s and 70s. So people like Paul McCobb and Marilyn K. Austin, uh, Legardo Tackett, and, and some of the pieces I li like the most are from a man named David Cressy, who, who not only made kind of production line um, in ceramics in very interesting and, and very pure forms, but also then created a pro artisan line where every single piece was finished by hand or has some sort of expression, and it was touched by a human being. Where, you know, we live in this age where, like I said, everything is a bit fast and flimsy. You just push buttons and 24 hours later, you, you, you supposedly have exactly what you asked for. Well, I, I think that, for me, that's one of those, you know, caveats to that convenience. You could, you could certainly, you know, create an interesting, you know, environment by just buying things at big box stores and, and places online. But I think we're 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 getting too used, or, or we've weaned ourselves off that beautiful, that the value in having a sense of discovery, and 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 the value of things being touched or made by hand versus just being tied up in a nice you know, box and arriving to you conveniently. So any time where I can share in the expression of, of someone's handwork or someone's artistry, I think that's, that's a huge value. And I, that, that's something I hope people really, um, I hope that's a message that, that, that is easy to read through coming in the showroom, is that it really is about kind of a love for things that, that have been touched by creative hands. And that's amazing, and it's extraordinary. And I think that that love for creativity mm. is something that you've espoused for your entire career. It's just it's just now taken a, a, a different form, and maybe that's the message: is don't be afraid to try new things, and don't be afraid, but but evolve thoughtfully. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I you know I, I either. We all have very interesting family dynamics, but if any of you are like. Asian, which I can see a few Asians, it is really tough with our parents. You know, we don't, we, we're kind of brought up thinking that we're, everything we have to do, we do because the family expects us to do it. And, and people don't really, in, in Chinese culture anyway, it's really kind of all about money or success in, in relation to money. Um, or to be overeducated in some way that you're just supposed to be smarter than everybody else. Well, I come from a family of doctors and eggheads and research scientists and, you know, for me to actually choose creative work, I kind of slipped that in, you know, under, under the radar and, and came out the other side with actually a career. But my, but 
my parents didn't really understand it kind of for a, for a long time. Um, you, you would think that would have been easy compared to telling them I was gay, but really they didn't care about being gay. They just cared how much money am I making. And, and, and they weren't going to be happy for me unless they knew that, y you know, I, I was kind of taking care of myself in a way that was better than maybe what they had done, even even though I think they were successful in many ways. But but um, I'm sorry. What was my point in all this? <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's really important that you give yourself the opportunity to choose exactly what makes sense for you. You know, I, if if I had um, if I had gone to medical school which I didn't have the chops for, I would have been incredibly unhappy. You know? Or if I had become a research scientist, I can't imagine being stuck in a lab and, 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 although I can't imagine teaching, I think that would be a nice thing. But if I had done anything the way I think my parents had, had impressed upon me that they should be done, I don't think I'd be as happy or as, as kind of comfortable in myself as I am now. I, I'd always be fighting something and I, I think that is, the, that is one of the greatest values in choosing a creative outlet, much less a, if not a creative career. I love that. I love that, and I love this. And again, I cannot thank you enough for yeah, being thank so you. selfish with, with your time and, and for coming out and for doing this. Thank you, Cliff. Yeah, I my pleasure. Thank that. you. <laughs>